Well, today we're going to continue with our study of Revelation chapter 21, in which John gives us his vision of the new heavens and of the new earth. But as we've seen, particularly the last two weeks, not just of the new heavens and earth, but primarily of the new city. John talks about a city. And one of the things I haven't said that maybe will help you to understand this new city maybe a little bit better is that in John's day, the idea or the topic or the concept of the city was sort of a live topic intellectually, and it had been for four centuries. People talked about the city. People thought about the city. People wrote about the city. If they had blogs, they would have blogged about the city. They, they talked to their children about the city. They argued and they dialogued about the city. There's a sense in which intellectually there was a quest for the perfect city that was alive in the days of John, and that's significant. John wrote and he lived in a Hellenistic culture, and he wrote to a people who heard and read his writings and lived in a Hellenistic or a Greek culture, which means, among many other things, that they knew the Greek poets, they knew the Greek playwrights, they knew the Greek philosophers, they understood and were taught Homer and Hesiod and Euripides and Aeschylus and all of the rest. They knew Plato. That's huge because Plato raised the topic. He raised the issue. See, it's the writings of Plato and all of the rest that really form the culture into which the New Testament is born. That's the pen that that the words of John are coming off of, and that's the kind of context that these people that he originally wrote to heard these words in. And for us to understand them rightly, we kind of got to get into their sandals. We need to hear it with their ears. And so Plato, for example, and I've talked about this a little bit in the past, you know, in the Republic, very famously asks this question, what is justice? And then he sets about trying to find it, see, through this dialogue that he creates between the characters of his book. They argue about it. They talk about it. They, they dialogue all about it. And he, and he starts out by trying to find it in the soul of a man, and he quickly abandons that. And he says, look, the soul of a man is just too small. It's hard to see. It's difficult to discern. So let's not look for justice there. Let's look for justice in the soul of a city. Why? Because what is a city... What is the soul of a city but the soul of its people, magnified for every citizen? Thousands of times over, it's much bigger. It's much easier to see. And that's an important concept, by the way. In the first century, when these guys thought about the idea of a city, they're not thinking buildings. They're not thinking subways. They're not thinking supermarkets. They're not thinking structures and streets and movie theaters and restaurants. We saw that last week. When they think about the idea of a city, they're thinking about the people of the city. The city is people. It's really important to understanding this vision. And so Plato says, hey, look, we can't find it in the soul of man too small. Let's look for it in the soul of the city because the soul of the city is the soul of man, but it's magnified, it's huge, it's easy to see and diagnose and deal with. And so then he begins to try to construct in this dialogue that he creates with his characters or in speech, in word, and I'm going to use a Greek word, just hang with me, in logos, it's an important Greek word, the perfectly just city. He says, what, is it, what would it look like? What would, it, what would it need? I mean, what would we have to do to create it? What kind of education would we need to provide to our children? What would the role of moms be and the role of dads be? And, and how would we raise our kids as a community? And what classes of people would we need? We'd need a ruling class and we'd need a working class and we'd need a guardian class and we'd need and we'd need. He gets all the way to the end of this most brilliant work. And he leaves the world in despair. Because he concludes that whereas the perfectly just city, everything that we're longing for and looking for in our lives and in existence could exist, it could only exist in word. 
It could only exist in Logos, you see? And then he says, and it's really fascinating, he says, but maybe in heaven. Maybe in heaven, he says, there is the pattern. Maybe in heaven there is this perfectly just man who has this perfectly just soul, after which the perfectly just city, which is people, it's people, could be fashioned. But the problem is, heaven is inaccessible. And he just walks away and leaves you in gloom. That's the culture into which John is writing. And that's the question and the issue that John addresses. I mean, you go to the very first words of John right out of the box in the Gospel of John. He wrote that too. And what does he say? Verse 1, chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Logos. He was the Word. See, he's taking up the Platonic discussion. He's saying, there's hope, guys. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he's saying, Plato, you're right. There's a heavenly Word. There is a perfectly just man, and he's in heaven. He was with God, and the Word was God. And 13 verses later, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. The Word is actually tabernacled among us. He's saying, there is hope. The hope is Christ. The perfectly just man has come from heaven to earth. Heaven is not inaccessible to us. All that we are hoping for and longing for, you see, there's the possibility of that, and the possibility of that is through Christ. And he's saying, we know because we've seen his glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then it gets even better because you get to the very end of all of his writings, to this part of the Bible that we've been studying now for four weeks, Revelation 21, and he says, oh, and by the way, new city. He shows us this city that is coming down from heaven, even as Jesus entered into the earth from heaven, you see? And it's a glorious city, for it is the city that is patterned after the soul of the perfectly just man who is Christ. It's striking. And it's not buildings. And it's not, you know, street signs. And it's not subways. And it's not restaurants, and it's not movie theaters, and it's not ballparks. It's none of those things. It is the people of God entering into the new heavens and into the new earth. We are the city of God. For you see, when they thought about a city, what they're thinking about is people. It's very significant. So John gives us this vision of the city, and it's a vision, and you need to kind of absorb this, of you. It's a vision of me, and it's not to say that there won't be a physical reality. I talked about that last week. Will there be buildings and street signs? Sure. Will it be amazing? Absolutely. Just understand that's not what he's describing here. He uses the image of a city. He uses the metaphor of a city and all these different components of a city, you know, foundations and walls and gates and streets and so forth, to describe who you will be in that day, and something of what our life will be like in the new heavens and in the new earth as we take up our residence, as we spread out and fill the new heavens and the new earth as the people of God. And the imagery is unbelievably beautiful. Just by way of review a little bit, some of what we saw last week, Revelation 21, verse 9, John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Again, if you know the book, basically this is the last angel, and what he's communicating here is that judgment is done. There is no judgment in the new heavens and in the new earth. Why? Because there's no sin. 
And that's kind of a glorious thought. I mean, you've got to pause and have these moments where you're going along and going, okay, no judgment because there's no sin. Now, what does that say about my existence? It says a lot. As we studied through this in our small group, you know, one of the questions that we asked as our community groups have been meeting is, okay, what is like the one thing when you get to heaven you're not going to miss about your life here? And one of the people in our group gave what I thought was the best answer, and it wasn't me. It was great. It was a much better answer. She said, I won't struggle with sin there. Think of what that kind of catches up. I mean, that's a big net. I won't struggle with feelings of inferiority there. By the way, that's sin. You're a child of the living God. You're not inferior no matter who or what anybody has told you about you. You're priceless. I'm not going to struggle with anxiety there. Again, parenthetically, and that's a big one for me, that's sin. Everything comes from the hand of a sovereign God who has sovereignly designed everything. Our, Our confession rightly states the teaching of Scripture when it says that He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass and that all of it's good even when we don't see that good. And that's a major theme in this city as well, and we'll see it again. I won't struggle with pride. I won't struggle with selfishness. I won't struggle with just fill in the blank, man. It's all under that category. John is starting. He's saying, listen, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Judgment is over. Sin is gone. And he, this angel, spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the what? The bride, the wife of the lamb, which everywhere in the Bible represents God's people. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me a beautiful woman. No, he showed me a group of people. No, he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Why? Because the people of God and the city of God are one. It's us. He's describing us like a city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, you see, reflecting the perfectly just soul of our God. It's radiance, meaning your radiance and mine in that day, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, which should be translated diamond, frankly, because a jasper isn't clear. Like a jasper, clear as crystal, John sees the people of God coming down from heaven as Christ came down, reflecting the glorious soul of Jesus like a beautiful jewel. And He tells us that to fill us with hope. And why should that fill us with hope? Well, because as we talked about last week, how is a jewel, how is a diamond in particular form? I mean, how does a black, dusty, dirty piece of coal become a precious jewel, a precious diamond? It's through great heat and great pressure. John is coming to us and he's saying, look, guys, take heart in this life that you're living now. Take heart and be of good cheer in the midst of the sorrows and the sufferings of this world. Understand that God is turning them into glory. He's using these great, you know, trials that you go through, the heat and the pressure to shape and to form you into the image of the Lord to make you capable of reflecting like a diamond His glorious soul forever and ever and ever. He's bringing good out of it even when you don't see the good that He's bringing out of it. He's encouraging us from His Word to persevere. It's cool. It's the kind of faith that we're called to. You know, one of the things that I was convinced to do about a week ago was to open a Twitter account and... um, You know, honestly, I resisted it, not because I'm I'm against Twitter or anything. I'm actually really kind of enjoying it, and I see the value of it. You know, it allows me to connect with people, and it allows them to connect with me in ways that 
we just wouldn't be able to do otherwise. You know, gain little insights, some of them frivolous, I will admit, but it's okay into their life and into my life. So anyway, I started this thing. I just didn't want to do it because I, I don't need another thing to do, and I don't like the word tweet. Um, I mean, in my experience, when somebody tweets, you leave the room. That's it. That's, that's what, you know, so it just freaked me out. But I am officially tweeting in a computer-generated kind of way. And, um, and what I'm trying not to do is to deluge my 19 followers with tons of quotes, okay? 19 as of this morning. But I did give a quote the other day, and I want to read it to you because I think it, it's relevant to this conversation. It's by a guy whose name is Kevin DeYoung. And he says, trust, and he's meaning trust in God. He says, trust in God does not mean hoping for the absence of pain. It's not what it means. He says, trust in God means believing in the purpose of pain. And over and over and over and over again in this vision, through his poetry, John is telling you your pain has purpose. It has purpose. It has purpose. It has purpose. He is calling us to that kind of trust, that kind of faith, that kind of understanding that says God is somehow making a diamond out of me. Stunning. John says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, the people of God. He's showing you you and, and, and he's showing you me coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, meaning the light of his glorious presence by which he will reveal the beauties that he is working in you right now through the great heat and pressure of this life as he conforms you to the perfect soul of his son. It's radiance, yours and mine, in the light of his glory like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, a diamond, clear as crystal. And then he says, it, this city had a great high wall. It's impregnable. It's unassailable. There is nothing that can mess it up. Nothing can stand against it. With 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. It's a city that is oriented to the east. You know, all of our physical world here, it seems, is in some sense oriented to the north. The compass points to the north. Not the city of God. Not even the people of the ancient Near East. Their whole lives, our whole spiritual life is oriented to the East. What happens in the East? Let's think about first what happens in the West. Every day in the West, the sun goes down. And I mean, if you're just watching it, like if you're in the Florida Keys and you can then run across the street, you know, you can watch it come up on one side and go down. If you're just watching it go down... It looks like it's descending into the earth, and everything goes dark and cool. It's a picture of death and burial, is it not? And every morning in the east, it comes up out of the earth, and it brings light. It brings life. It chases away all of the darkness. The encampments of Israel always set to the east. The temple of Israel set to the east. Jesus Christ, every time he's portrayed as coming, if you will, he's coming from the east. There's a sense in which all of our lives in the eternal city is set toward the rising sun, and you can read that in a lot of different ways. All of them cool. He's saying that we're set toward the rising sun, on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, 
three gates. And the wall of the city, he says, had 12 foundations. Remember that. That's important. And on them were the names of the 12 tribes, or of the 12 apostles, rather, of the Lamb. It's the city of the Lamb. And the reason that the 12 apostles' names are on the 12 foundations is because this city of God, the people of God, are founded upon the gospel that they gave their lives preaching. And then John says this, and this is really where we pick it up this morning, verse 15. He says, and the one who spoke to me, this angel who was showing John the heavenly city, okay, that is you and I, and that represents our lives in the new heavens and in the new earth for all of eternity, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. So this angel is taking a survey of the heavenly city, which is us. And then John gives us the dimensions, and they're staggering. They're like huge. They're unfathomable. He says he had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls, and the city lies four square, there it is again, its length the same as its width, and he, this angel, measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. That is about 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long. Oh, and by the way, as we'll see in a second, 1,500 miles tall. Wow. What is he communicating with this? This is not a literal city. He's saying, look, this city that I'm describing is unlike any city you have ever seen or will ever see in this world. Its proportions are so much greater. It's so much bigger. It's beyond our imagination. And then he gives us what I think is the key to the text. He says in verse 16 at the end, he says, its length and its width and its height are equal. He's saying, look, this ginormous 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 city that I just described is one big, perfect cube. Now, why is that significant? Because there's one other cube in the Bible, length, width, height, perfect. And it's the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Israel and then later in the temple that Solomon builds. And what is the Holy of Holies? Well, it was that place where God dwelt in the midst of His people. But He dwelt in the midst of His people in unapproachable holiness, in unapproachable righteousness. Yes, He's in the midst of His people, but He's separated from His people by walls and tents and priests and guards. You could not stroll in there. None of us could go in there. He's in the midst of his people, but he's absolutely unapproachable. What is John saying? He's saying, hey, just so you know, new heavens, new earth, new city, the Holy of Holies has been expanded to contain the entirety of the people of God who then spread out and fill the entirety of the new heavens and of the new earth. He's saying the entire created order is the Holy of Holies. It's stunning. And that's another thing. Again, you know, as you travel through this vision, you see that John is collecting up all these images. He's collecting up all these metaphors. He's using all of these different ways to poetically describe that the city, that heaven, is where God dwells with His people. It's where God dwells with His people. It's where God dwells with His people. It's like the refrain of a song. It's like the chorus of some kind of heavenly music that never ends. It just repeats over and over and over again. 
He's inviting us to understand that the single greatest thing about our eternity is the presence of God with us. And I think that's often lost. You know, I mean, we think about heaven and we think about its beauty and we think about its benefits. I won't have to struggle with sin or anxiety or whatever, or, you know, it's rest and it's, you know, and then we begin to think, particularly as we grow older, of the people that we've lost that we're going to get to see again. Or maybe of like the famous people, you know, I want to sit down with Apostle John and, I mean, what visions has he had there, you know? I want to sit down with Paul, I want to talk to this person, I want to talk, I want to meet, I want to, you know, I want to do, I want to... And John's like, hey, you know what, that's all great and good and it's going to be nice, but it's nothing compared to this. The treasure of heaven is the presence of God Himself in fellowship with His people, in mercy, in love, in grace, in wisdom, in friendship, in fatherhood, in intimacy, and on and on it goes. The greatest thing about heaven, John is saying repeatedly, is God with you. And who is God with us, by the way? It's Christ. He is Emmanuel, the Lord with you. So anyway, John tells us, he says, its length and its width and its height are equal. And then he says, he, meaning this angel with the golden measuring rod, the surveyor, also measured its wall, 144 cubits, which is like 216 feet tall. Sounds like a big wall, but not for a 1,500-mile-high city. You see, all of the proportions are exaggerated. He's saying, look, it's not a literal city, guys. And then he adds this little statement. He says he measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, which I think is just his way of saying, listen, I know that I'm stretching my language here. I know that I'm using big-time images. I know I'm inviting you to a huge imagination, but I want you to understand that there is a continuity between the reality of this life that you live in and the reality of that life that you will enjoy forever and ever and ever by faith in Jesus. The measurements, he's saying, are the same. There is a discernible, understandable quality to both. One is not just an ethereal realm. He's saying there's a reality to that that matches the reality of this. He says, the wall was built with jasper. This is verse 18. It means diamond, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. And now he's going to give us the foundations. You'll remember there are 12 of them. He numbers every single one of them, tells you what they're made of. And what I want you to see as he's describing this is that they're layered. It's one foundation on top of the next foundation, on top of the next foundation, on top of the next foundation, you know, and in that number, one, two, three, four, five, six, and so forth, all the way to 12. Picture that. And picture also that each foundation is just a little shorter than the one before it. Okay? He says, the wall was built of jasper, of diamond, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city, all 12 of them, were adorned with every kind of jewel. He says, the first was jasper, it's diamond, it's white, you see. The second is sapphire, it's dark blue. The third is agate, it's sky blue. The fourth is emerald, it's dark green. The fifth is onyx, it's many colored like an opal. The sixth is carnelian, it's bright red. The seventh is chrysolite, it's bright yellow. The eighth is beryl, it's clear green. The ninth is topaz, a rich amber. The tenth, chrysoprase, a golden jewel. The eleventh, jacinth or however you say that. It's aquamarine or turquoise, the 12th, amethyst, a brilliant purple layered with each one just a little bit smaller than the next. What in the world is he describing here? And again, you've got to hear it from their perspective. How would they have understood this? 
It's a stepped pyramid. It's a 12-step ziggurat. We've got a picture of a ziggurat. We can show it. You see that? It's a picture of a ziggurat that he's painting with his poetry. And a ziggurat in in the ancient civilizations, guys, is a four-square stepped pyramid oriented toward the sun, just so you know, with its roots in the earth, its uppermost parts in the sky. And on the very top of the pyramid... You can see the shelf on the top of the pyramid, the top of the foundations, if you will. You don't see it in this pyramid, but on the top of the pyramid, they would build a shrine. And they would paint it usually with a blue color so it would fade into the blue sky. It looked like it's connecting heaven and earth. The pyramid, this ziggurat, is a stairway to heaven in the minds of the ancients. They would ascend to the gods who would come down and meet them in this shrine. John is picturing the the heavenly city, if you will, and he's saying, look... There's a 12-foundationed, stepped pyramid made of gems upon which the giant cube of the city of God that captures all of the created order and in which God and man dwell sits. Stunning. See, the new city is the place where God dwells with His people. It's the place where God dwells with His people. It's the place where God dwells with His people. It's like John never tires of saying it. and of desperately trying to communicate the value of it. It's paradise, and what makes it paradise is the presence of God Himself. It's like the Garden of Eden, which, parenthetically, was also four-square oriented to the east, located in a high place. See, a ziggurat is a man-made mountain. It was located in a high place on a mountain, and it was the place where what happened? where God and man dwelled in perfect relationship until man sinned and was cast out, removed from the unapproachable holiness and righteousness of God. And all of us, all of humanity in that man left that garden. And we're left with this psychic understanding that this world that we wander in now is not quite where we belong. It's like there's somewhere deep in the heart of every human being a remembrance of the Garden of Eden where all was right and all was just and all was well. And John is drawing on all of these images. Finally, John speaks of the gates of the city, and St. Peter is not noted to be there just as an aside. There's not going to be any quiz that he gives you, you know, when you show up at the gate There's no joking at the gate. I mean, there may be a lot of joking at the gate, but what does he say? He says, in the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. You know, what's interesting about that to me is that throughout this whole vision, John has been describing the city and he's been using different elements, different minerals, you know, and, and all of the stuff that, that he's used to describe it so far have been stuff that you dig up out of the earth. It's, it's jewels. It's gold in particular. Not so with the pearl. The pearl is different. The pearl is created by this little animal called an oyster. Maybe you've eaten a few. And it's created out of suffering. This little oyster suffers, you see, in the darkness of his shell, in the darkness of his home, in the seclusion of the sea, and he suffers alone. And maybe you can relate to the oyster, and I think you're called to, to some degree. 
John is inviting you to understand and learn from the oyster. And then what happens oftentimes is that, you know, some little piece of sand, some little piece of shell, some little irritant of some kind makes its way into the home of this little oyster who is suffering, therefore, as a result, and then uses his God-given ability, that's important, to overcome the suffering, and in the overcoming of the suffering, to create something beautiful. He secretes this organic material with which he surrounds this irritant with something soft and something, you know, smooth and something round. And so at the same time, he's using this God-given ability to overcome suffering. He is also creating something amazing. That's what John has in mind. He's saying, look, when you enter into the new heavens and the new earth, not only will you leave behind all of the irritants of life, all of the hurts of life, everything that causes you pain, but you will in that day see the pearls that they have created as you use the God-given means that God has given to you by which to overcome suffering, by which to overcome irritation and pain. I think it's interesting that in ancient times, the pearl was the single most valuable object on the earth. Not gold, not diamonds, not jewels. He's saying that what you produce by faith, for that's the means of overcoming, is the most precious stuff. Stunning. It's really pretty amazing. And he writes this vision to inspire our faith, to give us hope, to tell us of a place where God is the prize and where all of our suffering is turned to pearl, where all of it there finally makes sense. He is not describing some literal, gigantic, 12-stepped pyramid with many different, you know, made out of jewels, with a giant cube encompassing all the heavens of the earth sitting upon the top. He's describing you. He's describing me, and He's using these images to do it and to tell us what we will be like and what our lives will be like in the presence of God there so that we might begin to live for that presence here so that we might begin to reexamine all of the things that we focus on in this place here. And so that we will persevere in faith here, okay? So go forth in faith. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You uh, for Your Word and for this vision. Um, God, we thank You for what You show and reveal to us of the new heavens and of the new earth. Um, And Father, I pray that Your Spirit would open up our minds and imagination in our hearts to believe Lord, to grasp the realities that John is seeking to reveal to us with the language that he's using here. Lord, I pray that you would inspire within us a hope and a faith, that you would reorganize our lives here in light of the reality of the life to come and of all of its beauties, that you would help us to see that this life is just a glimpse, it's a whisper, it's a blink of the eye, and that what you've laid up for us forever is glorious. Help us to reinterpret our lives, God, in light of this vision and in light of the great pearls that you're bringing out of 
uh, the great suffering that at times that we experience by your grace and in accordance with your perfect plan. We pray that you would make us to reflect even now uh, the glories of the perfect soul of Jesus. And we pray all of these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.